Hello and welcome to Dana Responds, a discussion with focus on the everyday stories that connect us all. My name is Darnell Christie and today, COVID-19 and solutions to climate change. What have we learned from the pandemic and how will it alter our response to the climate crisis? Find out as Dana Responds. It's now mid-July and after nationwide lockdown and countless days of quarantining, most countries are coming out at the other end of the coronavirus pandemic, returning to some sense of normality after what seems to have been a global ordeal. As we slowly start to get back into our routines, returning to school and work, some fear that we may be jumping into our pre-COVID complacency. Though the more immediate threat of the coronavirus may be lessening somewhat, the current status of the climate crisis remains very much unchanged. World leaders and international bodies are calling for a green recovery that will place the climate at the centre of future decision making. Later, we'll speak to culinary innovators Aaron Thomas and Leo Taylor who are using insects as food to tackle climate change. But first, we look into the human relationship with the environment and speak to Vijay Kolinjavadi, who is a postdoctoral fellow at the Institute of Development Policy. Welcome, Vijay. Thank you so much for joining us. It's honestly a pleasure to have you here. How are you doing today? I'm good. Thank you so much, Darnell, for inviting me for uh, uh, today for this uh, chat. Not at all, not at all. The pleasure is mine. Um, could you firstly just tell us a bit about who you are, what you do? Yeah, so uh, my name is uh, Vijay Kolanjavadi. I am um, a postdoc uh, researcher now at uh, the University of Antwerp at the Institute of Development Policy. And yeah, I guess I've been doing research sort of looking at social ecological uh, conflicts, uh, but particularly around specific policies that have been put in place and understanding uh, the links between societal well-being and environmental protection. Nice. That really ties into the topic that we're going to be talking about, which is sort of about policy and, and our relationship as human beings to the environment, um, particularly in light of this COVID-19 crisis. Um, so I just want to ask you, in your view, how, how linked is the environment in this COVID-19 pandemic? When we uh, talk about the environment, we sort of refer to this, to, to nature or to this kind of space outside of the human, sort of outside of us, outside of our societies, outside of our cities, sort of the environment as the air, as the water, as uh, animals and plants. But I think um, that way of even framing it might be something to think about just because the environment is um, you know inside of our bodies as well it's also part of everything that we are a part of if we take an expanded understanding of the environment not as something that has to do with nature but has to do with our role or our uh, positionality and our very much uh, being a part of the world, then, um, you know, definitely the, the, the pandemic and the emergence of zoonotic diseases um, are, in fact, they are very much part and parcel of the environment. One thing that's really interesting that I think we've noticed looking 
in light of this COVID-19 is that it's a very humbling experience, I think, for mankind in the sense that we don't see ourselves as a, above nature, as one would think. We're, we're, all, we're a part of it. And I think this crisis has really sort of highlighted that. Have you seen any sort of changes or witnessed anything that you kind of notice about the, the human relationship with the environment? Yeah, I mean, I, I think even the sorts of reflections that people are having um, about what does this pandemic mean about the world that we've created and the myths and the imaginaries of a sort of progressive and unstoppable, always getting better kind of world, you know, that where we're made to believe that uh, we've passed all of these threats, you know, where we've, we've, we've circumvented all of them, we've figured out technical solutions to address them. I think that um, that recognition that there was, you know, that, that that idea that the past was is gone and that uh, we don't need to think about it has just been called out of question. We actually rely on nature for for so much. And I think that's one thing that we can often forget, you know, things like medicines, food, water, these vital materials. These are things that we're using every day and that sometimes it can be hard to remember that this isn't just something that you know humans have just got from nowhere it's all come from somewhere mm-hmm. um and i think kind of again looking at that relationship between humans and, and nature do you do you think that we need to change that relationship what do you think we can do to sort of become slightly more friendly to the environment or, or understanding of our place within it i think um as i kind of alluded to a little bit in the beginning, just this idea that um, the way that we're sort of understanding nature is in a very specific way, a sort of a, a very specific imagination of, of, of pristineness, a sort of wildness. Or, uh, but when we look at our computers and our, our technologies, we tend not to see them as nature. We tend to see them as um, something that we created um, that is that is anti-nature or sort of not you know it's it's not that imaginary and I think part of sort of realizing or coming to an understanding of our relationality or our our relation I guess our our, our position within nature is to start to to kind of as you say, you know, looking back at where where do we get all of our things from? You know, where are all the microchips coming from in our computers, in all of our sound equipment and um, the packaging for our food and basically, you know, our housing and, and our clothing? And where does that come from and how is it transformed to turn into the sort of product that we see it today in which we don't we don't attribute it to nature? And in turn, how does that process affect us? So it's really a two-way, uh, two-way kind of relation, I would say. One thing that has come to my mind, though, a lot about this environment, this climate crisis, is that this is also quite a systemic problem, isn't it, Bijay? I mean, I know many people feel as though individual lifestyle choices um, are to blame, in this current crisis, you know, people not recycling, for example, or travel air, using air travel more than others. But ultimately, I feel that it stems a lot deeper than that on a structural level. What, what would you say to that? I think um, this goes far beyond anyone's individual action. It, it is a, a specific way of ordering and shaping and thinking about the world. So 
yeah, it's 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 it is in in indeed a very structural problem, and it's rooted in in ultimately it's rooted in who has or like one can ask the question who has the power who has historically had the power to shape and define the world and to define reality actually the our whole reality as we come to know of it in a particular way and and what ways were lost you know what what realities and world views and understandings of what it means to be a human being have been lost in this process and i think that's um that goes beyond anyone's individual action within the system. It, it's uh, it's a it's an existential question about who we are as a species, almost. Really, really good points there. Totally. I just want to draw our attention to something that happened a month ago, which is quite interesting. Um, here in the UK, leading charities actually wrote to the Prime Minister, urging a green recovery from lockdown, um, with a particular focus on public investment in energy, renewable energy, um, it was zero, zero carbon transport and the establishment of um, a climate infrastructure bank. Um, so looking at that, does it give you an idea of the sort of policies that you think we might need to start seeing implemented in order to see long, long lasting change? Do, you, do we think that we really need to go on that sort of that level where we're really kind of pushing long-lasting policy into our into our laws and things like that i, I guess uh, i can sympathize with i definitely sympathize with the need to to engage more thoroughly with a sort of um environmentally conscious or green centered form of development and policy or policy development but i i i want to just maybe again step back to um, I guess two things. One, the first thing that we talked about, our sort of relationship to nature. How do these policies um, that are proposed, are, are they um, kind of, again, understanding nature as sort of a black box for which we can objectify and incorporate somehow into into the development modus that we've been following up till now? So that's the first part. And then the second part um, reflects kind of what what uh, was mentioned just a bit a bit before relating to sort of structural um, structural components of the kind of development we want to see if our idea is really rooted fundamentally in growth and in, in a in continued economic growth above everything else you know we can have a green um, we can have a greener form of that growth we can have uh, post-pandemic recovery that is green but is still premised upon bringing the economy back to where it was and and ideally accelerating it uh, still further then the questions of how we might be perpetuating those forms of injustices premised around the the, the extraction of resources and the 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 um, sort of the cheap labor the labor that we require to do that dirty work is not really is sort of again internalized and so the, the, the extreme degree of inequality that we see in the world today, that should actually really be the core of what a greening strategy should look like. So it's very easy to, to you know, add green as a, as a prefix to incorporate it in, but then the question then arises as to what extent we're actually uh, making or centering our attempt to, to become more eco in or be more environmentally conscious in that sense as 
part and parcel of our crisis of inequalities and injustices that we see. Of course, of course. I think finally, I really want to talk about this concept. It's very interesting. It's been with humans for millennia and essentially it's about time. And I know with a lot of crisis, and I think it's really interesting to look, especially in this COVID crisis, the, the role that time played. You know, as soon as we heard news of COVID, you know, reaching the UK and then over to the Americas, you know, people panicked, you know, doing all these panic buying and, you know, lockdown was put in place and everything really, well, for the most part, pretty swiftly. But um, we kind of hear scientists saying things, you know, about that if we don't solve the issue of global warming in X, X number of years, I think, I believe it's 2030, that we could see irreversible changes to our world, of which potentially could terminate our existence on planet Earth. But with such a looming threat, why do you think there doesn't seem to be a greater sense of haste to, to want to do something? You know, do you, do you think that same sense of urgency, what, why, why can't we put that, that same energy that we had in trying to deal with this COVID crisis into the climate crisis? Yeah, I think this is a, you, you touched on a question that, that really, um, that I really take to heart and it's something that I, I can't stop thinking about actually, the issue of time and our, our relation to time and our understanding of time and ecological breakdown. I would say that, um, you know, it, it, this this virus, this pandemic has really, really, really illustrated just how flawed or how how uh, misaligned is um, our society's capacity to be in time to what it is actually experiencing. On the one hand, we have knowledge, you know, insight and, and evidence from science, uh, from epidemiology, which is saying, you know, these are some of the features we're determining, we're understanding about this virus. But our, our strategies to combat them or to respond to that knowledge are still being inscribed or enrolled into a temporality which is very fixed and rigid and just does not align to the temporality of the virus. And so the same goes for climate change uh, in very much, it's very much uh, a similar situation there where we are trying to respond to to uh, uh, um, enormous amounts of biophysical and um, atmospheric change which is affecting all aspects of life and has already transpired in at a speed and at a rate that you know within our understanding of time as you know in these very rigid predictable linear metrics has already you know something that far far exceeds our the predictability of what we could have what we could imagine you know the the fact that um you know we reach one uh, uh 38 degrees centigrade in siberia is not something that would has happened for thousands of years you know and that just happened last week you know just as you know as other things just show up and pop up in our news feeds and for the day you know everything is just brought back into the temporality of of our society which is not the temporality by which we're actually experiencing things and i i i, I don't would not 
would not simplify this to say that this is just something that human beings or humans have difficulty conceiving or dealing with. It, that's simply not true because other cosmologies and other, you know, other peoples who have lived on this planet for thousands of years, um, you know, and, and currently continue to live on this planet despite the, the inhospitable conditions for them, do are able to and have been able to recognize change in ways that then reflect how they act. Um, so again, this goes back to the way that we sort of shape and and, um, and view our world as sort of somehow outside of nature, as some, somehow sort of outside of it, and well, outside of it, and that we can manipulate it at our will and at our own temporality when we want it. Um, that that way of thinking, you know, the way that we have commodity chains, you know, zipping around the world producing our food and, and bringing them onto our plate and into our supermarkets just in time for us to enter into the supermarket to, to pick them up is an illustration of how adept we have become um, at manipulating the, the earth and manipulating all of, all of the, 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 the people on the, the planet, let's say, to, to, in a disciplined way to adhere to the time that we have imposed on it. But the virus, the, the climate change, um, the kinds of climate, ecological breakdown that we're seeing, again, proves and shows us that we are part of that earth. We are part of this planet. Thank you. Thank you so much for that conversation. There's your time. I've really learned a few things myself, actually, as well. Um, but yeah, it's just really interesting to sort of have a discussion about this and sort of, I guess, what we can learn go, going forward and and kind of try not to repeat the same mistakes, I guess. So on that note, thank you, Vijay. And uh, I really appreciate your time. Thank you, Darnell, for having me. It was really a pleasure. Thanks. That was Vijay Kolinjavadi, postdoctoral researcher at the Institute of Development Policy at the University of Antwerp. Now, creepy crawlies, insects, bugs, whatever you call them, have a special place in today's episode of Dana Responds. Culinary business owners of Bug, Better Universal Grub, Aaron Thomas and Leo Taylor have created a new way to view insects, and that is as food. Amid news of the climate crisis, where we often hear that our dining habits make up a large contribution to global warming, these two innovators are taking strides to produce eco-friendly cuisine whilst connecting us a little closer to what we eat. Whoops. Just peeling some of the garlic. Okay, I've just oiled some of the pan there. I'm gonna get on. There we go. And the garlic goes in. There we go. So Leo, please tell me what is Bug Box about? Yeah, so Bugbox is an insect recipe kit um, that we developed um, over the past few months. Actually, you know, launched launched it in lockdown. Um, so uh, the, the reason for it really was because we, so Aaron and I got together and we wanted to get cooking with insects. Um, we obviously, you know, found out that insects were a hugely sustainable food and, and actually could solve some of the um, food sustainability, sustainability issues that we have. So after some time, we um, making recipe videos and posting them on the Internet. Um, we started to get interest from people wanting to cook with insects just just like we were. Um, and, and that's really how the, the bug box came to be. 
Okay, so we've absolutely stacked up a, a tortilla. Let's have a bite. So I would say the mealworms have a kind of prawny taste almost, which actually works really well. In a wow, that's like quite an interesting journey. How did you go about actually developing the bug box and, you know, the branding, getting sourcing all the ingredients, knowing what goes with what? It seems like quite a lot of organization. We haven't been doing this just by ourselves. We also have a, a chef that's been helping us. But at the start, it was quite a lot of boiling, burning, baking, setting off fire alarms. Um, we <laughs> didn't really know exactly how to cook with insects because it's a completely different type of food. It's a differently, uh, it's a completely different type of ingredient to use in cooking. Um, so learning how to use insects through trial and error effectively led us to help us to develop the idea of a recipe kit so that we can teach people to not make the same mistakes that we made um and obviously with the help of a chef now um we obviously aren't burning as many dishes as we were before that's really interesting as well because i think that it's when we look at our society we seem to see sort of look at insects in a sort of a different way not necessarily associating them with food but actually it seems that a lot of us a lot of people i think it's about two billion people one third of the population of the world are already eating insects and i and i know that leo for example your your background is thai am, am i correct yeah yes exactly my mom's thai yeah right. and, I grew, and i grew up a little bit in thailand yeah and and in that region and i know in other places in southeast asia that seemed you know insects is a part of of the diet could you, could you tell me a little bit about that and perhaps why it's so uh, in the uk we seem to be so squeamish about these things no it, yeah it's a really good question darnell um so yeah as you touched on my my background is you know i'm half thai so um and i grew up a lot in southeast asia not just thailand but um in 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 other countries in asia um and yeah that they uh, I mean, it depends where you go, but, um, you know, certainly um, it's it's more common and, and, and it's eaten really widely. Um, and it, I was exposed to it as a child. Um, my mum used to take me to the market and, um, and, and we used to eat them there. Um, but it wasn't really until um, sort of I came, I came to the UK and I watched a documentary, I think back in 2013, um, that, that talked about the benefits of eating insects. But no, you're absolutely right that it is a cultural issue and it, and it really is a, uh, it, it's a, it's a shift of mindset. How do we take something that um, people aren't so familiar with and, and make it recognizable and, and get them to want to eat it? Um, but, but actually what's surprising actually getting into this is that insects aren't the first kinds of foods to do this. Um, if, you, if you think back to sushi, you know, 20 years ago, um, the idea of eating raw fish was really, you know, disgusting to, to a lot of people uh, in the West. Um, and now people are picking sushi up and, instead of, you know, sandwiches at lunch. Um, mm. And that's really happened, you know, in the space of 20, 30 years. Um, which is, you know, a, a pretty fast change. Do you think as well that depends on sort of how we look at the foods? Like, for example, I think when a lot of people think of insects, they think of eating them whole and, you know, looking at the bodies and everything. Whereas, like you said, with sushi, it, it is technically raw fish, but the way it's presented makes it, look, you know, really aesthetically pleasing. Is that something that, mm. for example, Bug Box um, offers as well that kind of helps people to sort of change their, their perceptions of what, what it is to actually eat these, these insects? 
Absolutely. I think framing is everything um, and, and framing, um, I mean, you mentioned the aesthetic part, but it's also all of the other benefits. Um, I think at the moment, insects, you know, in people's eyes are just seen as disgusting creatures. Um, but, you know, talking about the health benefits, talking about the sustainable benefits and also making them look delicious and look tasty um, is a big part of, of what we're trying to do with the bug box. I think your point about um, sort of abstracting the animal a little bit from what you're eating is also, you know, a really um, important point. We know that most people, you know, might not like killing a chicken, uh, but, but they're very happy to tuck into a chicken breast. Um, and actually the same sort of concepts um, in many respects does apply to insects. So we also offer um, powders that people can integrate into their into their recipes if, if they're a bit more squeamish. We, we actually have a, a squeamish scale from bugginner to bugatarian, um, <laughs> rel <laughs> relating to how squeamish people are. Um, so, what does that um, yeah, scale look like? So, so the bugginners, um, you know, are using the, the powders, and um, you don't really see the insects. So putting them into pestos or into pancakes um, and at the other set other, other end you're really eating you know the whole insect and you, you're going you're going in at the deep end <laughs> oh that's brilliant that is really quite a cool way I've, well, I've never thought of doing something like that but I, I think that's also quite important like you say you know especially even looking at you know the type of foods that we eat in regards to meat we seem to be very comfortable eating it when we can't see what it looks like so I guess in mm. a way giving people that chance to actually, you know, feel a bit more connected to what they're actually eating is also quite important. But Erron, um, I remember talking with you as well um, about how Bugbox is also really trying to fight against companies um, just promoting foods as snacks as opposed to meals. Um, could you tell me a little bit about that and, and what you're doing to sort of, uh, you know, go against that? For sure. Well, one of the reasons that Leo and I got together initially was because of our uh, our view on the current market at the moment. Many of the other companies that are out there are trying to push snack-like products, so energy bars, crackers, um, spiced insects. And what you're doing when you're creating that kind of product for people is well, there's a few issues actually. There's the first one is that you're adding insects to an item that never actually had meat in it in the first place. So actually you're increasing the amount of meat that people are eating and you're not actually being um, true to the problem of trying to reduce meat, global meat consumption um, to be more sustainable. And the second pro uh, problem is that you're kind of limiting people's experience of a insects to a particular product and a particular way that they can experience it. Insects are an extremely versatile ingredient and you can cook them in a whole different number of ways. I know we've touched a little bit on um, other cultures and how they cook insects, and particularly in Asia and parts of um, Southern America, they'll simply fry them. And one of our jobs, and one of the things that we're trying to focus on is finding the other ways that people can cook with insects that are more familiar to them, so they know how to use them in, in different ways and integrate them into foods that are more appealing to them, and also allow them to experiment and cook their own dishes that are completely new that no one else has ever tried before. Um, that's really one of the unique factors of eating insects. One thing that I think is quite interesting as well is that... Um, well, I heard that the EU are creating the European Food Safety Authority, creating new changes to the regulation soon, um, because currently bringing you bringing insects on the market have some sort of limitations. Um, what, what does this sort of 
set for the future for the the future of insect consumption should i say yeah well so um i think back in 2013 the fao um produced a big um report effectively saying that um they'd rec they recognized the the benefits of edible insects to sustainability and to society and recently more recently the eu have been um putting forward some changes there was a change to the um, novel foods regulations <clears throat> sorry um back in 2000 i believe it was 18 which now categorize now categorizes insects as novel foods um, this means that insects will be going are, are currently going through a transition period which they'll be hopefully approved um there's nothing to suggest to us that they wouldn't be approved we're hoping in the next few months that um, a range of insects will be approved and they'll be generally the ones that are easy to farm so it will be things like crickets locusts mealworms and buffalo worms leo can you talk to me about that um in terms of the environmental benefits i know um you know currently we're seeing you know a lot of people are moving towards veganism uh being mm. vegetarian i'm sure that you know have, having insects as part of the diet is also got some sort of benefit to sustainability as well yeah so um i think for i mean that there's several sort of um uh, uh reasons why you might want to be eating insects the reason why aaron and i are doing this is primarily for you know the, its sustainability benefits um so just to give you an idea you, you you're saving twenty two thousand times less water um uh per kilo of of, of protein wow. from, from crickets twenty two thousand times twenty two thousand times it's a wow. it's a huge number um and beef is beef is really bad <laughs> so um any anyone <laughs> listening um uh beef beef really is is the worst of the lot um you're saving two thousand times less less um greenhouse gas it um farming crickets per kilogram of protein than beef um and there's huge other efficiencies as well with you know land use and um uh, and also you know from from a health um perspective they really are a superfood so you've got more iron than spinach more calcium than milk um, more potassium than bananas um more b12 than, than red meat um but also they're extremely high in protein they, they absolutely are a superfood um and uh, i think the other thing to, to touch on is that um you can rear these insects off stuff that we would otherwise throw away so um we have a mealworm farmer in the uk who who feeds his mealworms um stuff that the supermarket would would chuck out you know it's perfectly good stuff um, but what you're doing is recapturing a waste flow and you're getting a superfood from that. Um, you know, as Aaron was, was talking about, the, the, the UN and, and the Food, food and Agricultural Organization um, are pushing insects as, as a food of the, of the future. That is honestly really, really exciting to sort of see where that goes. Um, and I think, you know, as I said, looking at where we go in the future, looking at sustainability is definitely has to include be, be included within those decisions that we potentially might have to make you know in sort of mm. battling the climate crisis and everything um but look, i really want yeah. to get to know about bug box now tell me how does it work how does one get their hands on one <laughs> um so we have a website um it's very simple bug.recipes um and uh, um, there's, there's several ways you can buy one. You can buy one um, as, uh, as a one-off. Um, if you're sort of trying to want to try insects for the first time, or if you want to gift it to someone, um, the one-off is a great option. Um, uh, or you could subscribe uh, and we have um, weekly, fortnightly or monthly deliveries. 
um, obviously depending on, on how frequently you might want to be cooking. Um, you get two recipes in a, in a box. Um, and uh, and and we we're, we're trying to you know um, keep keep these updated um, depending on seasons and um, actually we're in the moment of, of testing you know which recipes people are liking. I really loved, I think it was millwork, the stuff that was like dried up and that we put in tortillas. It was very, um, it was kind of a lot like bar food. Um, do I prefer the insects whole or powdered? I think I like them whole. Pouring the whole mealworms into a bowl was quite cathartic in a strange way, kind of gross, but like also, I actually didn't think it was that bad. So, Al, yeah. what did you think about the food tonight? Uh, I really enjoyed it. I thought, I, know, it's very I, thought uh, I really liked the wraps, but then the chili had sort of dominated yeah, the wraps. And I, I thought uh, the risotto was really nice yeah, and the biryani was really nice. Yeah. You really got to taste the bugs in those. Oh, Interesting. Yeah, I was a little bit the opposite. I thought that I thought the risotto was a bit too buggy. You could actually, oh, really? could you could actually taste the bugs, and I'm not sure I'm actually sold on the bug taste. I liked the food, but I want it to be more buggy. I want it to be kind of like Timon and Pumbaa in The Lion King, like sucking up like a massive grub. So, to both of you, what what are your next steps on on your journey? Then, where where do you hope that this will go? That's an interesting question. Um, well, we're hoping that um, more people try bug boxes, of course. Um, so we're currently thinking about types of meat alternatives, potentially, um, and developing that with our chef and a couple of other companies. We're also looking at other type of products that might be able to fit in a supermarket. We're kind of scoping out the, the breadth of products that are potentially out there and what, what people are most receptive to. Thank you so much to you both. I really appreciate your time today and giving us a little bit of information, of kind of insight into all that you've been doing and, and what it means. So thank you very much, um, Aaron Thomas and Leo Taylor. Cheers, Darnell. Yeah, yeah it's been fun. That's it for today. Thank you very much to our guests, Leo Taylor and Aaron Thomas, and also to Vijay Kolanjavadi for their time and wonderful chat today. If you enjoyed that episode, remember to rate, share and subscribe too. You can also follow me both on Twitter and Instagram at Darnell underscore Christie to find more content. Thanks for tuning in and I'll be back soon. Until then, have a great time. See you soon.